Hello, and welcome to Literary Work in Progress, fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I am Dan, and I think that The Phantom Menace actually wasn't that bad of a movie. I'm Kristen, and I was going to say that I think the best Star Wars movie is Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and I don't like Corn on the Cob, unpopular opinion. I'm Cameron, and I really like Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> Everybody talks about Star Wars except I'm for me. I'm so sorry. I would have, if I had known, I would have gone with something food related. I think like, pineapple doesn't belong on pizza. How about... I agree. <laughs> yes, it does. It's so good. What is wrong with you guys? How about if I'm going to do a Star Wars one? I don't have anything amazing to say about Star Wars other than the third one is terrible and I can't believe that. It's been years and I still can't believe it. Anyway. Majorly depressed when I walked out of the theater on that one. But... As Obi-Wan would say, it all depends on your point of view. <laughs> <laughs> and that is exactly what we are talking about this week. Um, the first segment of the podcast is going to be on finding the right point of view for your novel and how to stay there. This isn't going to be in an all-encompassing encyclopedia entry, just going to be discussing what the different types are, what their advantages and disadvantages are, and things like that. First thing is we just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about point of view in general. I like to think of point of view as kind of the window that shows you the story that you're writing. Basically, if I'm looking out through like a stained glass window to my backyard, obviously I'm going to be seeing a very different thing than if I'm looking out a Florida ceiling long corridor of windows. It's just going to show me something really different. So the point of view basically tells us as readers what we need to be focusing on and what the most important elements of the story are. So we're just going to run through some pretty basic points of view. I'm going to start with first person where you're inside the main character's head all the time. You don't go anywhere else. You're just seeing things through their eyes, through the lens of their experience. And there's some really cool things you can do with first person. It tends to be, well, it doesn't tend to be. It depends on what you're doing with it. It can be quite cinematic, almost like watching a movie where you're just following through and you don't have to think about anything because everything's right there provided for you because the person is thinking and feeling all at the same time. It's also a really immersive way to tell a story just because you're stuck in that person's head. You cannot leave it. Whatever they experience, you as a reader are experiencing. So I think that's definitely a point in its favor. With the exception of some really annoying first-person narrators, you're going to end up feeling sympathy for them, and you're going to want to be interacting with them, and you're going to feel like they are a part of you to a certain extent. It's like generally the more time you spend with somebody, the more close you get to them. It is like a movie in that the action is very immediate, and you get a greater immersion than you do in a lot of the other styles, but then it also differs in kind of a key way in that if a first-person narrator narrative is going straight to a movie, it's going to be a found footage movie in that you're always watching from the same person's view. Whereas in a movie, you know, you can cut between different scenes that are going on in different places all over whatever's going on. But when it's first person, generally it works better the more limited the perspective is. I think we've all seen Spider-Man Homecoming, right, at this point? Not Caitlin. Dang it. But I have. So opening, of that, yeah. <laughs> opening is first person. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's talking about his adventures in Captain America Civil War. It's like literally footage of what he's taken. It's found footage from Peter Parker. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and first person is a great way to show voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Simply how someone describes something can have a big effect on how you perceive them. So the car crashes and if the person goes, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, the car's crashing, I'm dying. And then another first person person. First person. 
And another narrator says, oh, darn it, not again. That can tell you so much in just one, how they describe the same thing. Well, and the person that you choose to be in their head, the things that they notice and their reactions to things like Dan was saying vary a whole lot. Like the difference between going to a murder scene and seeing it from a detective's perspective Mm -hmm. versus the victim's significant other's perspective. They're going to notice very different things. Like the detective might notice blood spattering or like a cigarette butt. And the loved one is probably going to be like, there's blood and that belongs to my husband, wife, whatever. I wrote a book about a baker a while ago. So she sees things like flour and like blackberry jam. And she, all of her analogies are about food. And that's something that is really fun and interesting to, it was a middle grade book. And so I had a whole lot of leeway to do that. It always made me hungry to read it. (laughs) (laughs) I think one other pro slash con versus person narration is that you can have unreliable narrators Mm -hmm. and that's really fun as a reader, but it can be really hard as a writer just because you want to make sure that you're being intentionally unreliable and not unintentionally unreliable. Like one of, (laughs) well, actually two of my favorite books have ridiculously unreliable narrators. They're keeping secrets from you the whole time. It's it's The Thief by Megan Whalen Turner and The False Prince by Jennifer Nielsen. And it's really fun to read, but I just worry every time that I'm writing something in first person that I'm leaving out details that are really important and I'm doing it accidentally. So mm-hmm. good side and a bad side. That's a really fun one for a twist ending. Like mm-hmm. both of those have, there's another one called um, Daughter of the Pirate King that has okay. a twist in it that just came out by Trisha Levenseller this year. And it can be fun from a couple of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's really fun to see a twist because your perspective is so limited and so you don't have the information to figure out what's going on except for the ones that you're talking about and the one i'm talking about is the the character intentionally withholding information Mm -hmm. and i think we trust first person Mm -hmm. characters more like you were saying automatically creates sympathy a confidence (laughs) yeah you're part of them you're in their head it's practically you one difficulty of writing first person is if you have multiple characters making them all first person sound distinct There's an author that I really like. Her name is Carol Lynch-Williams, and she once said that if you're having multiple protagonists in a first-person novel, sorry if I'm misquoting this, it it just gets really hard to make them sound distinct from each other. And yet it's so cool when you pull it off. But I think that that voice, that is exactly what sets people apart, and you have to be paying a whole lot of attention to the way your character speaks, the length of like their sentences and the things that they notice in order to differentiate enough that a person can just take one or two sentences from each of those pieces and know who it is who's talking. Do we want to talk about the advantages of past versus present tense when you're writing in the first person? For sure. So- <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Cameron. <laughs> As any of us English majors can probably attest to, present tense is kind of frowned. The the kind of the older you are, the more present tense is frowned upon, just kind of in general in writing. But in in retrospect, most of the really popular YA stuff written today is all in present tense. Caitlin's book that's coming out this fall is in present. So let me ask you, why did you choose to put that in present instead of past? I actually chose it because of the cinematic quality to present tense and the immediacy of it. I wanted people to feel as if things were happening right then as they read it, as they happened to the character, rather than it feeling like she was telling them a story that it had already happened. Like the sentence, they're shooting at me, Mm -hmm. is a lot more urgent than they shot at me. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that it's really popular in YA, like you were saying, because of that, there's a lot of of adventure and a lot of shooting at each other. I don't know. (laughs) YA is really exciting right now. But there's a lot of... That, I think, because of the cinematic quality. I also think this is a really big generalization. I wonder if, at least when it comes to YA, if it's related to the audience. 
I feel like when I was in high school I lived really in the moment a lot and I liked books that were in the moment because that was how I was perceiving things. Maybe that's just a personal thing, but I wonder if it's maybe related to the audience. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about second person really quick. Yeah. Cameron has been experimenting with second person. Right, so my current project is using the uh, choice of script HTML developer environment, which for more everyday speak, it's a choose-your-own-adventure that you can run through a web browser. And the idea is that in order to create a, an experience where the person reading it is the main character, you write it in second person, which as opposed to first and second person, it says you run up to the zombie and cut its head off as opposed to I run up to the zombie and cut its head off. Which, you know, it creates some very interesting dynamics that you have to juggle because on the one hand, it's really easy to rope the reader in to immediately what's happening and give the an interest because you don't have to build sympathy for a character because you're assuming that the person you're reading it likes themselves and so therefore they're going to pay attention to what's happening. So, Bad assumption, um, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> but that also creates an additional challenge in that when you are writing second person you are more limited in what you're allowed to dictate because the especially when you're writing a choose your own adventure type scenario where where technically the reader can't do anything you don't let them but you are still kind of corralling their expectations in that sure like let's say there's a villain in front of you and you as the player have a gun and then i don't give you the option to shoot the villain though because i want the villain to come back later and do something else spooky like you can't finagle that in the same way players are going to have issues if you don't give them options that they think they should be having second person doesn't really show up a whole lot in traditional stuff but we just thought we'd mention it and give you a feel for and kind to, of where it is used and to cameron's great credit in his game it is entirely possible to go through the entire story merely grunting when people <laughs> ask you a question <laughs> and i just thought i would mention a couple of second person novels that are out and if anyone feels like reading them they're worth reading so if on a winter's night a traveler is one that's all second person and so is less by andrew sean Greer. a ya that came out this year that's in second person is sad perfect I haven't read that one but i will have to take a look at it you will have to take a look at it. <laughs> Second person. <laughs> that was so bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> the third person is the famous one. A lot of really, really big, well-selling books have been third person. Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings. But there's different levels of third person. There's tight third person. There's loose third person. There's omniscient. And each one has its own strengths and weaknesses. So a tight third person is when you follow one person. You're in their brain. I mean, you're not really in their brain because it, it'll... You're still... You're hovering right behind them. You're hovering right behind them. That's a great idea. Yeah. You're following them around. And you see their thoughts. You understand their history. And all the details that are written down should still be processed through that mind, right? You can't see anything that they can't see. Yeah. You can't think anything that they can't think. It's almost like first person. You're just using Different she, pronouns. him. Yeah. yeah. So this is actually, we'll probably talk about ways that people trip up in just a minute. This, I think, is a place that a lot of people tend to trip over some problems. With third person, that doesn't mean you can see everything unless you're in omniscient mode, which we'll mm -hmm. talk about in a second. And so if you're talking about your own facial expressions and how they look, that's kind of a problem because most characters can't see themselves. 
or you're deciding how other characters feel or things that other characters can see and you're processing them through your point of view, mm -hmm. that's really difficult for a reader to get through and to understand what's going on. And it can, it can be really hard as a writer too because there are times, a lot of what I write is third person, it's like a tight third person, it's limited, and I'll want to be, like I know what other characters in the scene are thinking and I want to show it, and you can't. You have to set it up so either your character can kind of hazard a guess at it or your readers can put two and two together, but you can't just be like, Peter was thinking this. You end up using things like it seemed as like, if. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cheat, but... <laughs> if your character can realize based on someone else's facial expression whether or not they're angry or happy, you can use that. Yeah. However, you can't say Peter was angry unless it's because obvious. Because of this reason. Yeah, exactly. Like it, sorry. Something that the viewpoint character can deduce. Loose third gives you a little bit more leeway, though, I think, because this is where you are... You have multiple people that you can hover behind. I think, in general, it's best to stick with one character to hover behind for a given scene, just because that makes things easier, but you can switch perspectives, which widens the view from the window. You have more than one perspective. You have someone outside looking mm -hmm. in. Exactly. And someone on the bridge across the river looking over. Except that you still have to follow that same rule. Whoever's yeah. head you're in, you have to stay in their head. Or not in. Whoever you're hovering behind. As a good general rule, the more often you switch perspectives, the more you risk confusing the reader. So do we want to talk about Omniscient yeah, real quick? Yeah, that actually is basically what happens in Omniscient. In Omniscient, you have a narrator who is not one of your characters who can see the whole story happening. And so they can choose any detail they feel like. They can hover behind Dan's head. They can hover behind Caitlin's head. They can know what's happening five blocks away. They know everything. And honestly, this is a really hard one to do, I think, because it makes it hard for a reader to know what to focus on, like who the protagonist is, which details are the most important, who they're supposed to care about the most. And so I think it's really easy to mess up and slip towards omniscient when you're trying to be limited. And I think you can mix these too if yeah. you're really careful about it. You can have an omniscient narrator that like slips in occasionally mm -hmm. who says, but they didn't know. That's true. What they didn't know was happening across the street, except that I don't know. I'm sure that there are books that are completely on in omniscient perspective, but I think for the most part, if you have a narrator, they're not narrating everything. Goodreads says that Unwind by Neil Shusterman is omniscient, and I read that, and I didn't really feel like it was omniscient, so he must have done a really good job. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess it I guess it is, because he does mention a lot of details that the characters can't know, and he goes in and out of people's heads, so I can see it. I, I can see the point. <laughs> I think nothing we say is hard and fast. I mean, every rule is made to be broken, so long as you know what the rule is and you know that you're breaking it. Do we want to talk about, like, the rules for jumping around characters' heads in a scene? Yeah, let's do that really quick. Okay. What is a good way to accomplish that? I think the first thing you need to do is you need to make it clear that you're changing places. Mm -hmm. Usually people do that with chapter breaks or with line breaks, where you're not in the same set of narration or whatever so you're not like in the middle of a scene where actually last week we had a, a submission where we were in the monk's head and then suddenly we were in the person he's talking to's head but there was no indication that anything had changed other than that suddenly our perspective was different and it was it's like vertigo where you're like wait who am i talking about what's going on here and then I think it's really important that after you have a break, the very first sentence needs to indicate who the new perspective is. The longer yes. you're floating, yeah. the longer the reader has to get confused. One of my favorite authors growing up was Terry Brooks, who wrote the Sword of Shannara series. Mm -hmm. And one thing I noticed he always loved to do is he would go about a page or two without telling you who was speaking <laughs> or what the character was. It's like the sun was rising and they were wandering through the... And they're like, who's, who's talking? <laughs> who is this? 
So that definitely helps um, Cameron identifying people very mm -hmm. quickly. I think something else that can help identify a character is what details they pick out. We talked about how Caitlin had a character who was a baker and always pick out baking details. And if she had narrated that book with several people, I would expect the voice that's picking out baking details to <laughs> I actually had a problem with that, where I had I had a different character use a baking analogy, and I had to change it, because I really liked it, because I come up with it, and I'm like, oh, I'm so smart. But then I was like, this character totally wouldn't say that. And so, even though the whole thing is in the baker's perspective, I had someone else talking like her, and I was like... Got Killing that. darlings all over the place. And even how you do the third-person <laughs> perspective. I think it's um, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, where mm -hmm. it starts with the Muggle Prime Minister, and mm -hmm. then it goes to Narcissa Malfoy yeah. visiting mm -hmm. Snape. But both of them are different than Harry. Mm -hmm. Narcissa, you never get in her head. You don't know what she's thinking. Whereas Harry, you know what he's thinking. Mm -hmm. So that That's can help true. with the point of views as well. There are lots of really, really great books that do this head jumping stuff not head jumping we don't want to jump from head to head to head in one scene but to have more than one protagonist mm -hmm. this looser third like brandon sanderson does a really good job yeah, that's true actually after i wrote my first book i then read what's the name of that the book? fantasy that doesn't help that much. Yeah. <laughs> brandon sanderson sword one with the black sword that kills people you know Warbreaker? i haven't actually read that Warbreaker. Word. yes Warbreaker. swords all kill people but really the sword like kills people by itself anyway i read it right after i wrote my first book and i was like Swords. why did i even write a book what's the point of my life so when done well, you will probably have those feelings, <laughs> but <laughs> it's worth it to read and to, to learn from people who do it really well. Another really great first person is um, Patrick Rothfuss. Which oh my is, gosh, I could he's so rave about that all day. Yeah, great voice, great unreliable narrator, oh, and yeah. it's Name just of awesome. the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Really great epic fantasy first person. I don't know if there is any other epic fantasy that's first person out yes, there. Yes, there is, but okay. I can't think of the name. I want to say Doesn't something exist. by Robin Hobb. Oh, uh, Robin Hobb. Of it. The one with Fitz, who's an assassin. That's first person. Yeah, it's true, and that is epic fantasy. So there mm -hmm. you go. Okay, well, we should probably go over to our second section of our podcast. So when we critique, we don't tell people what to do. That's what we call being prescriptive. People know what they want to achieve with their story. So what we try to do is focus on what they did that worked and what they did that deserves a second look, what was not effective or what could have been more effective. So we usually start with positives first, and the synopsis of the submission is a land where there's a curse where when the sun rises, anyone over the age of 16 dies, unless they're in the safety of the city. So what are some things we really liked about this? I liked that it started in the middle of action. I thought that it was a good scene for immediate conflict, I guess. He doesn't make us wait and give us a bunch of backstory before jumping right into stuff. I think it's a good scene where not only is it exciting, but the action that is going on is a really good vehicle for displaying how the world works. We get this mad race of the king and queen in a carriage trying to return to the city before the sun rises. That is a problem that is specific to this world, and so it's exciting and informative at the same time. Yeah, he gives us a lot of information packed into this conflict. There's a countdown going on, and it feels very exciting, but he's able to give us all that information about what's happening and why without being info dumpy. Yeah, he does a really good job with details in general. Just like they're driving through the carriage and they notice out the window a big group of children coming home from working in the fields. And so immediately from that But they're that going detail, out to work in the fields. They are working in the fields. And, <laughs> and we know automatically that 
that makes perfect sense because if anyone that's not a child dies outside, then yeah, of course you're gonna send kids. But that's horrifying because it's child labor. And so there's just a lot of very interesting mental leaps that we get to make based on what he shows us. It's really effective iceberging. Do you want to define what iceberging is, Cameron? I should stop volunteering stuff like that. So iceberging is when you show a detail, usually about your world building, though it can be about a character too, where you just sort of flash like a small thing. In this case, is really short. It's that we have kids going out from the city to go work in the fields. What this does is on the surface, you can make a really quick leap to, okay, this makes sense. The kids can go outside the city without fear of dying, so they're going to be the ones who work in the fields. Well, then you go, well, hold on. Well, so the kids are living in poverty outside the city. Well, what's the social dynamic? Does everyone's kids go out? And you can see you get this train of thought that just starts steamrolling to all these different possibilities. But all the writer had to do was drop this one sentence that gets all that thinking going. So we call that iceberging because you have this really, really small thing above the surface that hints at a lot of complexity underneath. Now, what's really nice as a writer is you don't actually have to have the complexity underneath. <laughs> you can be bluffing, <laughs> but, but you can flash iceberging, and it's a way to make people really interested in your world without wearing them out with lots of exposition. Another thing that I liked about this submission is going off of that iceberging thing, I feel I know a lot about this world. I have a good idea of what the main conflict will be, and I think that there's an objective right from the beginning. Main character Cecily is probably going to want to find a way to stop this curse and reading this opening i know the premise i feel that i'm good to go for the next long while of the book i also like there's some really great creepy moments he did a good job of showing panic the sadness that comes along with this curse like that people lose their parents and their brothers and sisters and there was a really great tragic moment because this young man who just turned 16 ends up stuck outside the wall we're not really sure what happened to make them stay. Into yeah. Ash. <laughs> well, he gets eaten by these ghost things. And there's another really great creepy moment where we have a little girl who's trying to hug her mom because she's terrified and her mom disappears and there's nothing there but a pair of yellow eyes, like looking at her, which I thought he did a good job. As I was reading it, I felt like it was. This is probably just reader response and I don't really know what to think one way or another and it's up to the author obviously it felt like a prologue i think i'd be okay with it if our main character is cecily later the little girl who's the only person left alive after everyone gets trapped outside the city and obviously you can do whatever you want with your book if it's just a prologue and you like prologues awesome however it's probably hard to link the two together if you don't have somebody carry over I had a big question about the logic of having the king and the queen and the princess all outside of the city all night when we're told that they only have like a distance of like five miles by carriage and it seems much more logical and safe to go back to your kingdom before the, there's even a chance of the sun coming up. And so I felt like I was missing the logical intuition, I guess, that I needed to... It seemed quite convenient. Yeah, it, inconvenient. It was horrible. Yes. <laughs> I mean, convenient for the, the horror yeah, that's stuff. true. Yeah. And by horrible, I mean that I would hate to be in that situation as the king or the queen because they wake up and suddenly the sun is rising. Like, that's so sad and so preventable. And so I guess I was wondering why. And I wish that we had seen more of that. One thing that I was wondering, Cecily doesn't know what's happening. She's only four, but I have a good number of her four-year-old nieces and nephews. And usually they can pick up on things that are constant parts of life, that when you wake up, you eat breakfast, that you go to bed when it's dark. And I would imagine that Cecily, in a world where adults get eaten by ghosts if the sun comes up, 
She would know about it by this time, but her parents haven't told her, and they continue to deny what's happening as it's getting closer to happening. And this is where I, I have a question. This fact, the parents haven't told Cecily, could very easily be a character-building moment that can come in play later on. But if it's not a character-building moment, then that's something that I'm wondering about. Like, why has she not heard about this before? Mm-hmm. And why has it not been addressed? Yeah, four is pretty old to not know unless she's been really sheltered. I mean, she's the queen. She is the princess. She's the princess, so that's a possibility. But I, I would agree. I had that question, too. But, I mean, obviously she must know because she knows that her nurse is going out to be an explorer. So wouldn't she wonder to some extent what they need explorers for and why the children have to do it? That's right in that age where kids ask a lot of questions. So I feel like some of them would have been asked yeah. and maybe, like, glanced over or whatever, but... When they just say why over and over and over and over yeah, again, yeah. everything you say. Why? <laughs> Another thing that um, I thought might need a second look is some of the dialogue. It tends to restate information that we're given in the narration, where like someone in the nation will think, wow, we're late, and then someone will yell, we're late! <laughs> and so we're getting the same thing over and over, and I think if you just pick narration or dialogue that can help a lot the the way i was at least describing to myself is that there's a lot of times where there's a really good show but then there's a tell accompanying with it that's saying the same thing so i think in a lot of places you could keep the good show and then just delete the tell something else that i noticed is we've been talking about point of view i feel Mm -hmm. like we had some point of view jumping we're in the king's head when we start and then we switch to the queen And then we have, like, a little bit of Cecily. There's a point where the queen gives Cecily a hug, and it's like a warm blanket, except that it's the queen's perspective, and so she's talking about her own hug, like a warm warm blanket, which is kind of odd, I thought. (laughs) There's also, Um, yeah. Like, that no one should have been able to see, like... Mm -hmm. You said the carriage wheel coming off? Yeah, the carriage wheel comes off and then splinters into a thousand pieces, but we're in the queen's head and she's inside the carriage, and so she might have felt what was happening, but I don't know how she would have seen it. Unless she was staring out the window as it happened. She had her head out the window. The carriage wheel's (laughs) coming off! Except that I think she's hugging her daughter at the time, like with her eyes shut, maybe. And so another thing I noticed is that I did not know that there were two, there's a footman and a coachman, and I did not realize there were two until both of them got eaten separately. (laughs) So sad. (laughs) Massacre to start your book. So sad. I will say I didn't care particularly about the queen or king. I did care about Cecily a little bit, though. Um, well, you're a mom. Like, <laughs> to me, to me, I thought the 16-year-old coachman, just barely turning 16 and dying, impacted me more than the king and queen. We never got his perspective, though. It still, to me, was more... Like, we expect parents to die. And oh, my fiction. gosh! <laughs> parents are supposed to... It's true. Orphans, they're a trope. Let's be honest here. They're either abusive or they die. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will agree with that, because I was a little confused by some of the queen's characterization, because... On one page, she's like, I'm going to be strong. And then, like, the next page, we're in the king's head, and the king's like, Mary was sobbing. And I was like, wait, I'm so confused. She didn't seem too upset. Like, she was upset, but she wasn't, like, sobbing. sobbing. So I had some problems with that, too. But I think I'll agree with Dan. I thought the the kid was the most impactful. Would you all agree that we think some of the character impact was weakened by how much the perspective jumped around? I would, yes. Yes. I would. 
I would. We start out with the king, and then the king jumps off the carriage, and the submission keeps going. Which is really sad, and I feel like could be a very impactful moment. Mm -hmm. However, because we are so hectic and, like, trying to figure out where we are, it's hard to even understand what's going on. Yeah. I was about to say, major kudos to making jumping off a coach heroic. I haven't seen seen that before. First time in the history of fiction. It it was a very pro-tag moment for a man that we don't see anymore. So if you'd like to submit... To have your work critiqued, you can submit your first 10 pages, double space, 12 point mm-hmm. font, to our email address, which is literarywip at gmail.com. We promise not to make you cry unless you're really Sensitive. prone to crying. But yeah, I don't can think we can us. make that promise. I think we can promise not to try to make you cry. That's we will try very promise. hard not very to make good. you cry. That sounds very qualified and scary. That is a more we can clear. This is Literary Work in Progress. Make sure that you are revising, revising, revising. Join us again in a week. Be sure to write your manuscript every day. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.